Chapter Eleven, Part One of Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. New South Wales and Queensland. We left the Spencer Street station by five o'clock and began the long, tedious journey of eighteen hours by rail to Sydney. We dined at Seymour and arrived at Albury at 11pm, where we changed into the sleeping car, the Lady Parks. These cars are much better arranged than those in America. The berths are wider and higher, and the four at the end of the carriage are reserved for ladies and divided off by a curtain. At Albury, we crossed the boundary line between Victoria and New South Wales, formed by the Murray, the greatest Australian river. After a course of 2,400 miles, receiving the waters of six large rivers, it discharges the drainage of one half the continent upon the southwestern shore near Adelaide. Fortunately, we were coming from Victoria into New South Wales, instead of vice versa, or we should here have had our trunks searched by the custom-house officials, for Victoria labours under the iron hand of strict protective duties, whereas New South Wales is governed by comparatively free trade principles. It is partly these heavy duties that makes Melbourne such an extortionate town. At Albury also the line changes from the broad to the narrow gauge, neither New South Wales nor Victoria being willing to adjust it to each other. We passed Wagga Wagga of Tichborne fame during the night, where Roger kept his butcher's shop. Strange that we had only just been reading of his release in the English cablegrams. After passing the wide stretch of country called the Riverina, we had breakfast at Goulburn, the seat of a bishopric. These are the barren plains which extend 900 miles to the west of Sydney and form the centre of the great pastoral industry. The country became more populous as we approached Sydney towards 12 o'clock. We found the carriage waiting at the station to take us to Government House, where we received a most cordial welcome from Lord and Lady Augustus Loftus, who had known C in St. Petersburg and Berlin, where His Excellency had been ambassador. After luncheon, they proposed that we should have some fresh air and take our first impression of Sydney from its beautiful harbour by going out in the Ney, the steam launch. Sydney Cove was alive with launches, steamers and yachts and with the large ferry boats that plied to and fro to the north shore. Vessels belonging to every nation in the world were lying in its docks or at anchor in the cove. We passed the Carthage of the Peninsula and Orient Company, bearing down the harbour out to sea, and from the windows of Government House, the arrival of a mail steamer is a frequent object of interest. We saw many a vessel painted entirely white that had come from the tropical climates of Chile, Peru, or the South Sea Islands. Wool warehouses, sugar manufactories, and timber yards line the banks giving us some idea of the vast shipping and commercial interest that centres in Sydney. We gathered, too, some idea of the size of the town, 
from the straggling suburbs that extend out a long way up the Parramatta. Bearing up this river, we passed Cockatoo Island, famous in the convict annals of earlier days, a remembrance of which still lingers in the stone sentinel box of the keeper in charge of the gangs. It is now used as a dock for warships, and another island farther up as a gunpowder magazine. Leaving all traces of the busy town life behind us, we were out in the country, the low river banks bordered with gum trees, and houses with their gardens sloping down to the water's edge. Once we were suddenly transported back to some happy days spent on the beautiful shores of the Italian lakes, for a stone terrace with pillars and steps down to the water made us exclaim, Isola Bella! We turned homewards under the huge lunatic asylum standing on the hill, and where the claimant's brother is now confined. Government House is an architecturally picturesque building of bath stone, built by convict labour. The entrance is very pretty, driving up under the archway of the tower. The windows of the central hall are filled with stained glass, and the walls hung with full-length portraits of former governors. The grounds overlook the harbour, and slope down to the water from all sides of the promontory on which Government House is built. But the accommodation is inadequate to the requirements of the house, as is also the ballroom for entertaining. The Government House at Melbourne is far more imposing, but for comfort and everyday living, the one at Sydney is far preferable. I went out into the veranda in the evening after dinner to see the powerful revolving electric light of the lighthouse on the heads at the entrance to the harbour. At first, you see only a glimmer of light, and then the broad rays coming sweeping round, shimmering in the darkness, till the full blaze of light dazzles the eyes for a moment. But the charms of sitting out in this veranda and garden are spoilt by the plague of mosquitoes, and for the first time I was obliged to sleep within the filmy shadow of the mosquito curtain. Saturday, November the 15th. A bright morning, promising to be very hot during the day. The view from our sitting-room window was beautiful this morning. The haze over the distant hills and the blue water of the harbour dancing and glinting in the sunlight. From the garden beneath there came up through the open window the sweet, sickly smell from a magnificent magnolia tree, thirty feet high, and from the beds of gardenias, which bloom at the rate of a hundred a day during the summer months. We took a hansom after breakfast to explore the streets of Sydney. Macquarie Street faces the open space where the exhibition buildings stood, which were burnt down, the large hospital which remains unfinished for want of funds, the mint, and the Houses of Parliament. It ends in Hyde Park, where, within the railings, stands the bronze statue of Albert the Good, and opposite is the granite pedestal in the square, laid by the princes Albert, Victor and George, when they visited Sydney in the Bacante, awaiting the statue of Her Majesty the Queen. The streets of Sydney are narrow and crooked, but it is a prettier and more interesting town than Melbourne. It has, too, a much more old-world look. The most notable feature in the streets are the huge silent locomotives, black monsters, 
that come gliding noiselessly round the corners. These steam tramways appear most dangerous to strangers, as the level crossings are unguarded, and there is no warning whistle. They consist of a traction engine and two large omnibus cars, and there is a covered station where they start from. Omnibuses, which ply every hour between the suburbs and the town, and hansoms are the other vehicles most in use. The latter are very unsuitable for the steep streets in the town and the hills in the suburbs, throwing as they do all the weight when going downhill upon the horse's forelegs. The shops are moderately good, and though not actually so expensive as those at Melbourne, are in reality more so when the comparative absence of duty is taken into account. With the exception of Macquarie Street and Maclay Street, all society lives without the town in the suburbs, clustering on the points or round the bays of Our Harbour, such as on Darling Point and Potts Point or Rose Bay, Double Bay and Woolloomooloo. There is too the North Shore, a very beautiful suburb, lying between the harbour and the sea, and only communicating with Sydney by a ferry at present, though before long there will be a bridge built. The jealousy between Victoria and New South Wales is carried to the most ludicrous pitch. The Sydney people declare that when they built any institution, Melbourne copied them in it, only building one larger and finer. Melbourne points to its buildings and Sydney to its harbour, and it reached a culminating point last year when New South Wales talked of the Victorians as our friends in the cabbage garden. Having just come from the cabbage garden, we were close questioned as to our impressions by comparison with Sydney. I was very glad that we had been to Melbourne first, for I honestly preferred the former town. Lady Augustus Loftus had a garden party in the afternoon. The excellent band of the permanent force, which has since furnished the splendid contingent for the Sudan, playing in the garden. I was very much struck how far quieter and less well-dressed the people in Sydney were, how much more behind the times when compared to their sisters in the rival city. I played Matador in the evening with Lord Augustus. It is an Australian game, played with dominoes, but has been stopped at the clubs on account of its enormous gambling facilities. C went to see Mr. Semple, a wonderful American breaker of horse. He undertakes to subdue the wildest horses by the simple but somewhat cruel method of lightly securing their heads to their tails when they spin round and round till they fall to the ground giddy and exhausted. He has had wonderful success hitherto, and his classes of instruction are largely attended. Sunday, November the 16th. I went to the cathedral in the morning, and was much disappointed in the cold, semi-choral service and the bare interior of the building. The primate, Dr. Barry, was away, performing country confirmations, so I did not hear him preach. Monday, November the 17th. We went over HMS Miranda, a man of war, anchored in front of Government House. The boat, manned by a crew in white jackets, came off to the jetty to fetch us on board, and the commander, Captain Ackland, showed us over. The sailors' quarters appeared to me miserable. They have all to cook, sleep, 
eat and sit in one room in the hold of the ship. Lady Augustus, on our return, took me to the picture gallery, which is a poor wooden building, but contains a good collection of watercolours, and some pictures that have been exhibited in our academy, including works by Leighton, Goodall, Viscat Cole, etc. Their latest edition has been de Neuville's Rourke's Drift, and £5,000 is now yearly put aside out of the estimates for fresh purchases in England. They have in the gallery two or three of Marshall Wood's statues, including the beautiful one called The Song of the Shirt. He is the sculptor of the Queen's statue in the Parliament buildings at Ottawa, which we admired so much. In the afternoon we drove through the domain to the rocky promontory at the end that is called Lady Macquarie's Chair. It is a small park formed of the strip of land running out into the harbour. Tuesday, November the 18th. I went into the botanical gardens, which are the most lovely I have ever seen. A terrace overhangs the bay in the harbour, round which the gardens lie, and there is something in the smooth lawns and the endless shady walks that give to it a romantic beauty of its own. C. then took me to the magnificent government buildings in Macquarie Street to see Mr. Vernon, Secretary of the Railways, who had come across the Pacific with us in the Australia, but I could not see the council chamber as the council was sitting at that moment. There was a dinner party in the evening, including Sir George, one of the judges, and Lady Innes, Professor and Mrs. Smith, Mr. Fosbury, the chief of the police, and Mr. Daly, Attorney General and Acting Colonial Secretary to the present government, a most accomplished and clever man. Today there has been one of the northeast winds that make the climate of Sydney so damp and relaxing, but they are nothing when compared to the northwest or hot wind, which is intensely dreaded. These hot winds are caused by the wind blowing over the parched deserts of the interior of Australia, when they bring with them a fiery blast that burns and shrivels up all before it. Night or day there is no relief during the two or three days that they remain. When the change comes, it is generally with a southerly buster or tremendous storm. Sydney suffers most from these, but I never shall forget how terrible was the oppressiveness of one that we had at Melbourne for a few hours only whilst we were there. Wednesday, November the 19th, to the opening of the legislature by commission at 12 o'clock. The governor did not elect to go in state, having closed the parliament in person only the previous fortnight, this being a short session for the passing of the estimates only. We went over the houses afterwards, which are small and inconvenient and built of wood, but they are about to erect new ones. Then to luncheon with Sir Alfred and Lady Stephen, who presently drove us out to see the Alfred Hospital. The foundation stone was laid by the Duke of Edinburgh, after whom it is named, and the handsome stone building cost £120,000. All the appointments of the hospital are excellent. The house surgeon begged to be excused from taking us over, as he had seven operations to perform that afternoon, and sent for Mrs. Murray, the matron, a charming woman, to do so instead. Near the Alfred Hospital is the University, 
the first that was founded in the southern hemisphere and around are the affiliated colleges of st paul and st andrew belonging to the church of england and the presbyterian body where religious instruction is given none being allowed at the university sir alfred stephen is lieutenant governor and the late chief justice aged eighty-two he has had eighteen children to whom the number nine has always been attached so curious is the coincidence that i append some lines written by himself in court in eighteen fifty nine during a very long speech by counsel in the trial of a squatting action which had lasted four days twice nine or judicial impartiality exemplified of children this night had no less than eighteen twice nine little heads with a marriage between he had nine when a barrister nine when a judge and of six since to nature he owed not a grudge nine exactly were girls the other half boys an equal division twixt quiet and noise while if by marriage the number he reckoned there were nine of the first and nine of the second nine in tasmania nine new south wales then to show with what justice he still held the scales since nine it was clear he could not divide a third sex yet having never been tried five sons and four daughters in hobart were born that four sons five daughters might sydney adorn twin daughters twin sons complete the strange story of this patron of wigs though constant old tory there was an evening party at government house followed by a small dance the veranda looking so pretty lighted with coloured chinese lanterns thursday november the twentieth lady augustus had very kindly arranged a picnic for us to see the middle harbour our harbour is very beautiful but you tire somewhat of the incessant repetition of the fact that is required from all new arrivals to sydney perhaps the idea of the officers on board a newly arrived man-of-war was the best when they hung over the side of their ship a board painted in large letters we have seen your harbour and admire it we left the jetty in two launches on a gloriously bright morning a party of twenty pleasant people we passed by several of the sheltered bays where so many of the pretty houses lie first the one with the soft complex name of woolloomooloo and afterwards darling point followed by double and rose bays and then we put in at a little sandy cove and some of the party including ourselves climbed up the hill to the camp of the permanent artillery at the top colonel roberts showed us over the canteen mess store and officers huts and c went over the fortifications which are very strong we re-embarked noticing the lighthouse whose friendly beacon we watch every night before us were the bold bluffs on either side the heads which form such a beautiful natural opening to the harbour passing through them we should have been in the open sea we however took a turn to the right to go up the part of the harbour called the middle harbour and leaving manly beach the margate of sydney to the right we got safely past the sandy shoals of the spit and laid to in a sheltered cove for luncheon 
It is a grievous pity that the sparse foliage of the gum is the only vegetation on the banks and gives to them such a dull, monotonous colouring. But very pretty are the little headlands that jut out into the water, or the larger necks that enclose some bay or inland sea, that gives one an idea of endless little harbours unexplored within the larger one. I think the harbour, or Port Jackson as it is officially called, with its seventy miles of frontage made up by the windings and turnings, may be likened to a beautiful lake. But how Anthony Trollope thought it so inexpressibly lovely that it makes a man ask himself whether it would not be worth his while to remove his household gods that he might look on it as long as he can look upon anything. I cannot understand. After luncheon was over, we tried some fishing, but too much debris from the feast had already been sent overboard for the fish to do other than nibble at the bait. In coming home, Clontarf, the spot where the Duke of Edinburgh was shot at, was pointed out to us. We landed two passengers at the camp, anchored for tea in Chowder Bay, then went slowly home, disembarking members of the party at various piers. As we neared our wharf, we saw the little Noah's Ark, belonging to the American man of war, plying backwards and forwards with guests returning from the afternoon dance they were giving on board. C had a very pleasant dinner at the house that evening, given to him by Mr. Burdett Smith, meeting Sir John Robertson, the Speaker, and many other prominent politicians. The next day he made an expedition to Parramatta to see the Premier, Mr. Stewart, who had gone there for change of air after his recent attack of illness. Saturday, November the 22nd. We left Redfern Station at 8am in a special train provided for us by the government to make an expedition up the Blue Mountains. The party consisted of Sir Alfred Stephen, the Honourable George Dibbs, Colonial Treasurer, Mr Critchett Walker, Principal Undersecretary, Mr Barton, Speaker of the Legislative Assembly, Mr Harnett, Sergeant-at-Arms, Mr Fosbury, Commissioner of Police, and Mr Loftus, as well as of Mr and Mrs Francis Joseph, who had been most kind in asking us to stay with them at Double Bay, and four other ladies. Breakfast was served on board the dining car attached to the train immediately after starting, and if the truth ought to be told, we were eating all day long, with the wherewithal so close at hand. We passed Parramatta, or Rose Hill, the ancient Sydney, and saw its old government house, now used as a lodging house, and the church with its two little towers, which was to have been a cathedral church. At Penrith Station we were at the bottom of the Blue Mountains, and had our first comprehensive and beautiful view of them, tracing at the same time our zigzag line up their sides. Soon we crossed the Nepean, or the more familiar Hawkesbury on a stone bridge, which has so lately been the scene of Canadian Hanlon's rowing feats. After passing emu plains, so called from the herds of emus that used to roam over them, we reached the first zigzag. In eight minutes more, we had descended six hundred feet. The train at the zigzag is run to the end of the gradient, points being shifted by the guard, and then run up the gradual ascent of the next level. It certainly is a much simpler method than that in America, where the train describes a circle round the corner 
whilst clinging to the mountainside. We had a beautiful view over the rich cultivated fields of the lowlands in the country of Cumberland, a changing, ever-shifting view as we ran along the side of the mountain and then turned upwards to face the opposite way. The air felt brisker and colder as we got up into higher altitudes. After reaching the summit we went through many miles of gum-tree woods, the young tender shoots yet crimson in their spring foliage. Lovely glimpses of deep gorges we had, dimly defined by the trees sloping downwards into the shadow of the ravine, but with that all-pervading dull, greeny-grey blue produced by their dense covering of gum forests. It seems to me that no scenery in Australia can appear very beautiful. One view must be much like another on account of the terrible monotony of the gum tree. How we long today to see some of these deep gorges in the mountains clothed with the different shades of green produced by our oak or beech or chestnut. We passed Falconbridge, the beautiful mountain home of Sir Henry Parks, who had very kindly asked us to spend part of the day with him, but we were anxious to go on to the Lithgow and the second zigzag. Katoomba, with the Great Western Hotel, is the spot where most of the visitors from Sydney stay, its great attraction being its splendid situation overlooking the Canimbla Valley. End of chapter 11, part 1